So the book of Joshua. Joshua is basically a book that covers the time period of Israel entering the promised land. They've been wandering in the wilderness for like 40-something years, and now they're ready to enter the promised land. So the title of this book actually is more based on the character's name, where before Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, where typically the title came from the first words or the opening lines of the book, now we're getting into where the book is more um, a top, the title is more of a topic or based on somebody's name. And so the name Joshua actually means, or Yeshua, there are no J's in Hebrew. They're all Y's. And when the Germans came along and translated the Hebrew, they don't have any J's. They tr- pronounce it like, or sorry, they don't have any Y's. They pronounce it like J's. So that's where you have Joshua. But Yeshua actually means Yahweh saves. And if you translate Yeshua into Greek, it is Jesus. It's the same title, same name. And that basically means Yahweh saves. And so this is pretty fitting because here's what's interesting about this book is in the book of Exodus, God was mostly focused on what he had saved them from from their, 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 their slavery and idolatry and that kind of stuff. And then he brings them through the wilderness, and he's trying to paint this picture of what they can be. And now when we get to the book of Joshua, we are now going to be given the story of what God is saving them to. And that's going into the land and where God is going to put his name on the land and dwell with them and that kind of stuff. So this is basically supposed to be the second part of salvation. And even as Christians today, we often think about what we've been saved from, but we don't really talk about or think about a lot of what we've been saved to. And that's probably, I don't know, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I would say is just as I've been teaching kids for a very long time and looking at my own life, I almost feel like that's a more important question to be thinking about than what we've come from. Because from is always that depressing past. But the two is, that is the kingdom of God. That is our potential. That is the vision that God has for us. The other thing that's interesting is, we've kind of talked about this in other books, but the, the first word of this book, even though your English Bibles don't show this, is actually not what you see. The first word is actually the word and in the Hebrew. And this is based on the va conjunction. And a va conjunction is basically and. And then, and then, and then, kind of an idea. And so when Genesis begins, Genesis just begins. And then the first word of Exodus is and. And the first word of Leviticus is and. And the first word of Numbers is and. And the point of that is showing you that this is really supposed to be seen as one story. And all these books are connected as one story because it's a very weird way to begin a story, and. If you start reading a fictional novel like that, you'd be like, okay, what did I miss? There was a book before this. And that's the whole point. But when we get to Deuteronomy, even though Deuteronomy is kind of the end of Moses' life and teachings and that kind of stuff, it actually doesn't start with and. And it's showing you that we're launching kind of where it's it's this pivotal book where we're ending this one chapter of Moses' life as the lawgiver, painting the idea of what God wants him to be. But it's also the beginning of the new chapter of what's called Deuteronomic history of what they will actually become, them actually executing this. So Deuteronomy 
his three speeches of Moses are basically him looking at the past of how they've screwed up and what God has done for them and then encouraging them to not screw up like their parents did as they look into the future. And so it becomes this pivotal book between what God wants them to be but they have not become and then going into this new chapter of history, what they will, will become and what God wants them to be. And so Deuteronomy does not begin with that. But when we get to Joshua, it launches back into that um, and and showing you that this is a continuation of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is actually the first chapter. It's the last chapter in the Torah, and it's the first chapter in what's called this Deuteronomic history. And every book after that, in the historical books, does the same thing. Judges is going to begin with and, and Ruth is going to begin with and, and, and Samuel is going to begin with and, and Kings is going to begin with and, and then, then it stops because that's the end of what's the Deuteronomic history. And so the First Testament can really be divided up into four sections, three narrative sections. The first one is the Torah of their life preparing them for the promised land. And then the next section is the Deuteronomic history of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and Samuel, and Kings. And that's them actually living in the land. And then the prophets are basically telling them what God really wanted them to be, how to live in the land. And then Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and all that kind of stuff is them being kicked out of the land and returned it. And so all these books center around the land. And that's very important because that's pretty much the main idea of the book of Joshua as well, is the land. And so the author is showing this Deuteronomic history of the life in the land and it's basically just a fancy way of saying the history that follows Deuteronomy is the focus here. So this setting. So a little crash course on the first five books of the Bible. Basically, God began by, in Genesis, of introducing himself as the absolutely unique and sovereign God of all creation. And unlike the pagan gods who created out of chaos and are creating only certain things, and they're limited in their own power, and they have a beginning and an end, and they have no love or care for their creation in any kind of way, and they create a bad, jacked-up creation, and humans to serve them as slaves. Genesis begins with, in the beginning was God. He has no origin story. And the first thing he does is subdues the chaos, which means he's not creating out of the chaos. And he creates an orderly world, unlike the pagan gods. And he pronounces everything good, which the pagan gods could not pronounce. And then he creates humans to be the image of God in order to rule and subdue creation with him as a partner. God loves to delegate. He doesn't need us, but he's a relational God, and he likes to delegate. And so this is the image that we have, that God is absolutely unique, unlike any other God in any story that you've ever read, even modern-day stories. And so basically he sets this up, and he basically paints this idea where he's built this garden, he's put Adam and Eve in it, and he makes some kings and priests, because they're in the garden, which is the word garden is a temple, and so they're serving as priests, which basically means connecting creation to God, but they're also serving as king and queens because they're supposed to make all of creation look like God's character. And he gives them the command to be fruitful, multiply, and work until the garden, basically expand the garden. Take this little garden, this temple of God that he's living in and dwelling with them and expand an entire the planet so the entire planet looks like the garden of God, the garden of Eden. Unfortunately, when chaos entered through the serpent and they were meant to subdue the chaos and redeem the serpent, they decided to side with it and everything fell. 
So the next story of Cain and Abel and the flood and the Tower of Babel is a story of God's or humanity's fall. And it's actually the fall is not chapter 3. The fall is chapter 3 through 11. It's just humanity is falling and falling and getting worse. And the apex is when they build this Tower of Babylon and they basically decide we're going to make ourselves gods. We're going to be completely in control. And they build a government that's completely opposed to God where they make a name great for themselves. At that moment, God disinherits them. He basically says, I'm done with you. You just keep sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. And no matter what I do to pursue you and redeem you, you keep rejecting it, ultimately building your own satanic kingdom, so to speak. Because God is never, ever completely done with us, because it's contrary to his character as a redeeming, covenantal, loving God, he decides to step in the very next chapter, and he chooses Abraham. And he decides he's going to choose Abraham to build him into a nation and hopefully train him to be a godly nation so that all the other nations that have been disinherited will come into Abraham's nation, Israel, and find a new inheritance. And so that's what he does. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons, they build this nation, ultimately end up in Egypt, and then they're enslaved by the pagan disinherited nations, the evil Egypt. And so then God delivers them out of that under Moses, and he redeems them and adopts them as his nation, gives them his law, where they will learn what it means to be righteous and to look like God. And then he gives them the tabernacle, where they'll be able to dwell with God and actually have a relationship with him, like the garden, as close as you can possibly get in a fallen world. And then he gives them the sacrificial system, where they will learn how to come to God when they sin. And unfortunately, they keep screwing it up. And they repeat the first several chapters of Genesis. They end up acting just like all the other nations. But because God made a covenant promise with them to never abandon them, he still sticks with them. And eventually we get to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, and they're standing on the edge of the promised land, and sorry, in the book of Numbers, and they're about ready to enter the promised land where they're going to be the people of God, and they say God's not capable of giving us this land. So God in his anger kicks them back into the wilderness, and for 40 years they wander until they all die. Now the next generation comes along, learns it. It's kind of like if you have an older sibling and they're always disobeying and getting in trouble, and the next sibling is a lot better because they watch their older sibling getting in trouble all the time and realize, I don't want to be like that. And that's kind of what the next generation did. They watched their parents screw up and screw up and screw up and screw up, and then they got punished and punished and punished, and the next generation is like, not going to do that. We're not going to be like that. So when that older generation all dies, Moses gives them a speech and basically says, don't be like your parents. Remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the law of God. Go into the promised land and be what God has called you to be and what you can be, or he would have never called you to be that. And so Moses at that point dies because he's not allowed to enter the land, and he passes the torch to Joshua. And Joshua is going to lead the most faithful generation ever in the history of Israel. So he leads the most faithful generation ever where they're going to actually enter the promised land. So that's the setting to the book. Now the structure of the book is, this book is divided into three sections. The narrators kind of divide this book into three sections. And all three sections are focused on the preparations for entering the land. Chapters 1 through 5 is all about those preparations. So it's all those final things that Moses said, make sure you get everybody circumcised, do the Passover, get in the land. 
He's prepping them to enter the land. And you need to understand that this book is actually not really about conquests. The main focus is not war. It's not military. It's about living a life with God in the land. And if it was just about military, they would just go in and plow everybody down. But the first five chapters are completely dedicated to their relationship with God, the relationship with land, and getting right with God, and getting right with the land before they go in and conquest. The next um, section is chapter 6 through 12, and this is the actual conquest. Now, what's interesting is there's only really about two battles that are even talked about in detail. And in chapter 6 through 12, there's only two chapters that are actually about battles. And most of the other ones are just, and they conquered this, and they conquered this, and they conquered this. And it's really about Israel's lack of faith or faith. And that also shows you that when you finally get to the meaty action scenes, there's only two chapters, and they're really not that epic. Which is another way of the author's way of saying this really isn't about military conquering. This is really about their relationship with God. And we'll talk about that more when we get to that section. And the last section is Joshua 13 through 24. And this is basically the land allotment. And this is where everybody gets really exciting because this is like, and you get this land and you get this land and you get this land. That's the part where you usually probably stop reading and think like, oh my gosh, there's a bunch of names and territories that I don't get. And this is kind of boring. They got the land. Let's go to the next book. But here's the thing. The fact that God devotes 13 their chapter 13 through 24 all to a very detailed account of the land and the borders of the land and who gets what shows you that that's really the main focus of this book the main focus of this book is god giving them the land and then receiving the land them god fulfilling his promises and them inheriting the promises of god And so, yes, we will go a little bit faster through that than any other section, only because it's just a bunch of list of names that don't really need a lot of unpacking. But it is a very, very important section to the book to understand this. So that's kind of the structure. Preparations for the land, taking the land, and divvying out the land allotments. So the purpose of Joshua, the whole reason why the author is writing this, is to demonstrate Yahweh's faithfulness to Israel to fulfill his promises of bringing the land of Canaan. The whole point of this book is to show that God was faithful to give them the land. And one could accuse God of not being faithful because when he promises Abraham that I'll give you the land, and then he doesn't get it, Isaac doesn't get it, Jacob doesn't get it, the twelve sons don't get it, and then they're enslaved by the Egyptians, and they're in Egypt for 400 years, probably 200 years of that is slavery, and they still don't get it, one could easily say, God, you don't honor your promises. I mean, that's way longer than America's been around. We have very little patience. And so the reality is, they can accuse that. Then they finally get to the promised land, and they don't take the promised land because of their lack of faith, and they immediately accuse God of not being faithful to his promises, even though it was their fault. The point is that they are finally here. And God didn't honor his promises. And the first several books can almost say that sin is the delayed the promises of God. God did not delay because he was unfaithful or slow. God delayed because their sinfulness delayed the promises being fulfilled. And I think that's a very important thing for us to understand is that God has promised us a lot of blessings. And oftentimes they don't come because, one, he's doing something like with Abraham and Sarah where he promises them a child. 
but he's got to wait till Sarah can't have any kids anymore so that when he blesses her, it'll be totally obvious it's him and not just natural things. And other times, it may we don't have the blessings because our sin is delaying it. But it's, very, it's never, ever, ever about the lack of faithfulness of God. It's usually because he's doing something great or we're doing something really crappy and we're not getting those blessings. And so that's the main purpose, is to show God's faithfulness to give him what he promised them. The second purpose is that Israel is remain faithful so that they can remain in the land. Yes, God will never, ever, ever disinherit them because of their promises, but blessings only come through a mutual relationship. And it's just like your parents may never, ever give up on you, but you're not going to have a good relationship with them if you're constantly disobeying them. And so obedience is necessary to have a good relationship and to have good blessings. And so the second part purpose is to encourage Israel to remain faithful so that they can remain in the blessings of God. And so those are the things you need to keep in mind as we go through each chapter. Those are the two purposes is God's faithfulness to the people, which should encourage the people to respond in faithfulness to him. That's the main point. Now, there are several themes in this book. And the first theme is the land. The land, obviously, is one of the major themes. And despite Israel's lack of obedience, God was still faithful to give them the land. The other thing I need to help you understand here is the land is important. And this is something that we don't really talk about as Christians in a lot of churches. But when God is creating the world, the three most important things in Genesis 1 and 2 is Yahweh, the land, and humans. Those are the three most important things. Yahweh is obvious because he's creating in every single day, speaking on every single day, and pronouncing everything good. He is the focus. He is the major action, the person who's doing all the verbing, so to speak. And so he is the main focus. Unlike all the other pagan gods who create different things on different days, God creates everything. Now, the land is the next important thing, and that's something we don't usually think of, like the land is one of the most important things in creation. Because water, land, water is seen as unlivable. And that's how creation starts, is an, a watery abyss. And then God, in the midst of the waters, pulls this land up out of the ground, out of the water. And land is where we live. Land is where seeds grow. Land is what produces plants and food and that kind of stuff. And the fact that God speaks once on day one, once on day two, and twice on day three, which is the creation of land, and then he speaks once on day four and once on day five and twice on day six, which is the creation of humans, shows that emphasis there. And so that land is the second most important thing. And then obviously humans are the third because he speaks twice on the day of their creation. But then he devotes the whole second chapter of Genesis to the creation of humans. And he also talks more about the creation of humans in chapter one than anything else. Now, what's cool is that the word for land there is Adama. And the word for human is Adam. And so when you get to chapter 2, God literally says that he pulled Adam out of the Adama and then commanded Adam to rule over the Adama. And the fact that he's using those words shows that they're directly linked. And so we're the only thing that's actually created out of the dirt. And we're the only thing that's placed in the land and told to rule the land, expand the land, and take care of the land. And that shows our direct connection there. And so the fact that God created the land and then chose to live in the land with us shows how he's linked to the land. And the fact that he created us in his image and chose to make a covenant with us shows his link to us. 
And the fact that he created us from the land to rule over the land shows our connection to the land. And so all three of these things are intricately linked. And this is one of the most dominant things throughout the entire Bible. So then what happens is you get to Genesis 3 and they disobey God. And they're immediately exiled out of the, the garden, the promised land. And they're exiled eastward. And every single time you see somebody moving eastward, it's always bad. So when they are exiled, they move east. And Cain goes east away from God after he kills Abel. And they move eastward to build the Tower of Babel. And Lot looks eastward to go to the Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jacob flees the promises of God and goes eastward to another land. They're always seeing this theme of going eastward. And so what you have is the land and moving eastward out of it is not good. So when we get to the book of Joshua, they're going to enter into the land westward. Because the garden is also a temple. And the garden is a temple, and the gate of the Garden of Eden is on the east side. Which means if you leave the garden, you have to move eastward. But if you go into the garden, you're moving westward. And westward is always seen as good, moving towards God, moving towards his promises. And so this image is set up of this land. So the, the, the garden basically has a tree of life that produces fruit that will give them life. Yahweh is there with his light, lighting everything up, and humans are there, and there's two cherubim in the east guarding the gate. When we get to the tabernacle, God has them create a tabernacle, and it's a God dwells in it, and he puts three things in the tabernacle, three things in the holy place. He puts a lampstand that has light and also looks like a tree, the way that they're supposed to carve it. And the light is supposed to be pointed so it shines on the table of showbread, which is fruit and crops. And so it's like this is the fruit of the tree. And, so the, and then you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God. And so when God creates this tabernacle, he puts his presence in it through the Ark of the Covenant. He puts a tree of life with a candle stand where its light shines on the table of showbread, which is fruit and crops. And then the gate is on the east side. And he has them stitch in gold thread two cherubim guarding the entrance to the gate. And so the tabernacle becomes a recreation of the garden. Although it's a dinky garden because it's only 75 feet by 150 feet because there's sin in the world. And we are then called to protect that tabernacle and expand that tabernacle. Unfortunately, they never do that. Then when he brings them into the promised land, this is what you've got to see is basically... You have a promised land, and the Dead Sea acts as one pillar of the gate, and the Sea of Galilee acts as another pillar of the gate, and the Jordan River is the gate on the east side, making the entire promised land another Garden of Eden. And so what God says specifically, I will put my name on that land, and I will dwell with you in that land, making it the garden because he's there no other nation he says no other nation will i dwell in that land and put my name on it and name means character which means i'm going to transform this land to look like my character and i'm going to dwell there with you and then he calls this land over and over again a land flowing with milk and honey fruit crops abundance in fact when they bring back the sample of the grapes it's a cluster of grapes that requires two men to carry it it's so big what he's doing is recreating this garden and you're like, okay, but where are the angels? The angels are there. They're guarding the entrance. 
because when Jacob runs away from God, he encounters angels right when he crosses the Jordan River, and he sees the angels going up and down the ladder. And then he leaves for 21 years, and when he comes back, he encounters angels again, and he actually wrestles with an angel. And then when we get to the book of Joshua, when they enter the land, Joshua is going to encounter the commander of God's heavenly host. And the word host is an angelic military. And so the reality is, as people enter in and out of this, they encounter angels. And because they're guarding this land. And so this land is portrayed as a new garden. The difference is this garden is filled with sin. And it's the Canaanites. And if the Israelites don't remove that influence, that sin will corrupt them as well and make them no different than the Canaanites. So here's the thing. In some ways, this is a Garden of Eden because God has claimed it as his. He's put his name on it. He's going to dwell in it. He's going to put his people in it. He's given his law, his tabernacle, and sacrificial system so that they can transform this land into the garden and begin to expand it to the rest of the world. But at the same time, it's not really the garden because we live in a fallen world. And it's filled with sin. And it's filled with the Canaanites. And just like Adam and Eve were told to work until the garden to make the whole world look like the garden, God is going to call them in the book of Joshua to go into Israel and work until the land, so to speak, to remove the Canaanites to make it a land like God. The problem is they won't completely remove the Canaanites. And eventually they'll become corrupted and we enter into a whole other fall, so to speak, just like Adam and Eve went through. And so you have to realize that this land is more than just a place to live. This land is God's vision, dream, whatever, for lack of better words, ideal for recreating the garden and getting it back going again. Because you have to realize that the whole point of the entire Bible is getting us back to the garden again. And that's why the book of Revelation ends with the kingdom of God and Yahweh and Jesus and the temple of God coming down to earth and dwelling here. And there is no more sea, chaos. There is no more darkness. And there is no tree of knowledge. There's only two trees of life. And he paints that same picture, but this time Christ does what we could not do. He actually turns the entire world into a garden. And so this is the whole thing. The main idea, and of course, when you get to Revelation, you have God, the land, and humans all in there. And those are the three focuses at the end of Revelation. And so you have to realize that Joshua is God's ideal for recreating the garden. And they get really close, and then Judges is them screwing it all up. And so the land is incredibly important here for them. And in the same way that they are called to turn them into a garden, we're called to turn our own nation into a garden. But the difference is now we have the Holy Spirit and Jesus living in us to help us do that where they didn't. That's the, the major theme that is going through this book. The next theme is the faithfulness of Yahweh. And so the whole theme that you're going to see here is the faithfulness of Yahweh. First, the faithfulness of Yahweh to bring them to the land, and then the faithfulness of Yahweh to give them land. And this is why the battles are so important, but yet they're not. It's important that you notice that they're not important. Because the reality is, I told you back in the book of Numbers, when you, they're defeating Og up here and Sihon down here, it just says they went in and they defeated these two guys. And that's it. Now, if you're watching a movie, you would say, that really stinks. 
I paid 12 bucks to see an f- action movie, and it just says, John McClane defeated the bad guys. And that's it? That's the movie? I would feel very ripped off, especially when these are the two most superior forces in all of that region. But remember, the reason that battles are epic in stories and movies is because the enemy is formidable. The only reason battles are epic is because the enemy is as strong or almost as strong or stronger than you. And it's a huge struggle for you to defeat them because you're equal. And therefore, it leads to a really epic battle. But when God just comes along and says they defeated them, the reason that it's just like that is because it's not epic. Because the enemy is not formidable to God. The same word that spoke all creation to existence is the same word that just wipes them all out. And so if you want epic battles, don't read the Bible. In fact, there are a few times that you do get epic battles in the Bible, and it's usually when the people of God are not trusting God, and the, the battle does become epic because they are now equal to the enemy or less than equal or something like that. And usually epic battles is the first sign that Somebody is not faithful to God. And so that alone, the fact that they're just going to walk around Jericho, it's going to collapse. The fact that they're just going to go this city and this city and this city, and God says they defeat him, they defeat him, they defeated him. The fact that that shows his faithfulness to do what he said he was going to do. The faithfulness that is his faithfulness to them, and they're responding in faith to him that actually makes this possible. Not their military strategies, not their superiority, not their numbers, not their technological advancements, but faith, mutual faith going back and forth. And so that's a big theme. And of course, it ends with God giving each tribe the land that he promised that he would give them 40 years earlier under Moses when he divvied out the land, yet they couldn't get it. And so the faithfulness of God is a huge theme here. Now, the third theme is Israel's need to be faithful to Yahweh. In the same way, now, obviously, these themes are just being pulled right out of the purpose. And it should be. If you've got a purpose and the themes are completely different, then the author has done a really crappy job of fulfilling his purpose. So the themes will follow, flow out of the purpose. And so basically what he's saying is they must not forsake God and make alliances with other people. If they're truly to live out Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall know that God is before me. This includes going to the land of Israel and not making alliances or treaties with anybody in this land because they've been marked for destruction and not worshiping any idols in that land. And so one of the things that Moses warned them in the book of Deuteronomy was when you go into the land and you move into cities that you did not build... <laughs> because they built them for you and God was faithful to give it to you. And when you're surrounded by idols everywhere, do not go after them. Because here's the temptation. When you're in the wilderness with nothing, it's really tempting to say, you're a horrible God who's not being good to me and you're not loving to me and you're not keeping your promises. I'm going to go somewhere else. But when you're in the land where the land is flowing with milk and honey and rain is coming and there's fruit in everywhere and it's very easy to think the land is just giving it to you and God is not giving it to you and there's idols everywhere. It's very easy to forget about God and be distracted by the materialism and go after other gods. 
And so probably the book of Joshua fits more with us. In some ways, we do recognize what it's like to be in the wilderness because many of us have gone through wildernesses of suffering and trials and that kind of stuff. But most of the time, we're living in a land of abundance, total, absolute materialism. And God is warning them, it's very easy for you to look around and not see God, to see corporations providing for you or lawyers providing for you or bankers providing for you or your own company providing for you and go after those gods. And this is what God is warning them of. Don't make treaties with people that are not like God and don't go after the things thinking that they're providing it for you and not God. And that's his warning to them to remain faithful to him even when it looks like these other things are the source of blessings rather than him. Because he's also going to make it very clear the minute you disobey, I'm going to stop the rain. And that whole land will dry up and it will become the wilderness. Just like at any moment, God can collapse in an economic depression, any corporation, any bank, any resource that you think you're trusting in and actually is giving it to you. And we've seen that in our history. And so the reality is, yes, they may be the immediate, most obvious source, but not permanent and not the ultimate source. And the last theme is the need for unity. And there's a huge focus on this because God is going to make it very clear that when we go through these stories, you're going to see that they're going to be more successful when all tribes come together. And when they all don't come together, they're not going to be as successful. And then when we get to the allotment of the promised land, God really emphasizes all the tribes together, 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 together. And God is going to really emphasize unity. Now, this theme doesn't really come out and grab you like the other themes. This theme, they're so good at the unity overall, you kind of just take it for granted. But when you get to the book of Judges and see the absolute lack of unity, and then you go back to Joshua, the theme of unity stands out even more in the book of Joshua. And so this theme tends to stand out more when you see it not present in other books of the Bible. And so unity is going to be a big one, and this will, um, we'll see this as we keep going. Obviously, these are themes, and as we go through each section, each chapter, we'll be, I'll be unpacking these themes as we go. So any questions, comments? So is it the boundary for the promised land all the way to Ukraine? Ah, very good question. The boundary, when God originally promised the land to Abraham... It was all this, all the green. And it's the reason it's not the bottom right side is because that's desert. Nobody wants to live there. But it's all green all the way to the Euphrates River. However, that was the long-term goal. That was the goal, promise that God made to Abraham with the understanding that they would eventually become the nation that he wanted them to be. But when Moses came along, God made it very clear through Moses that he was only giving them the land between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. And he made it very clear that they could not handle taking it all. So in the book of um, Deuteronomy, he makes it clear, I'm not going to give you all the land at once because you're not enough people to maintain the land. You can do anything through me conquering the land, but once you take the land, you're a fewer number of people than the Canaanites there, which means the wild animals and the wild force will just claim you. 
and you'll spend most of your life battling the abundance rather than enjoying the abundance. So he told him, I'm going to give it to you little bit by little bit, generation by generation. And that's the whole point. At the end of Joshua, God's going to say, stop. The land's not completely conquered, but he tells Joshua to stop. Not because they're disobedient, but because he says, I want the next generation to have something to do too, so they don't get spoiled inheriting something that they didn't have to work for. And so they, the judges' generation, was supposed to finish the conquest of the land. And then once they had cleared out all the Canaanites, then God was going to allow them to expand beyond the Jordan River. But here's the thing. They have no right to expand beyond the promised land of the Jordan River if they haven't first cleaned up the sin and the idolatry in the land. How can you expand a garden that's not even clean? If you've got tons of weeds and thorns and disease and vines growing all over your garden, then how dare you try to go out and like buy another house and try to expand it into that? And so God's original goal was like, you have to take this land, you have to cleanse this land, you have to make this what God wants it to be before you have the right to expand. And so this is the garden, so to speak. Everything east of the Jordan River is expanding the garden. And just like Adam and Eve had no right to expand the garden when they couldn't deal with the chaos of the serpent that came into their garden, Israel can't, has no right to expand the garden until they take care of all the Canaanites in the garden. Does that make sense? And so that was the long-term goal was the green. That's like you moving into an absolute money pit hole of a house and feeling like you have to remodel every room at once. Just start with one room <laughs> and get that done. So, yes, that is the ultimate goal. Unfortunately, we will never, ever, 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 ever see that in the Bible. Because they were never faithful enough to make the garden the garden to even expand it, just like Adam and Eve. I would love to know what it would look like for Adam and Eve to expand the garden. Unfortunately, they couldn't even keep the garden. 